Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. All right. So we've been talking about the 12 apostles. And uh, this is the list, and we've actually come almost to the end of it. The only ones we've got left are Peter and Judas. Um, And uh, there are certainly other disciples of Jesus that I think we're going to cover, but I think we're going to wait for the new year to do that, because we're going to conclude this and then start heading into Christmas. Um, So we're about to, so we'll wrap up the the 12 here over the next uh, few sessions. So tonight, and then a couple more weeks starting in November, Um, because again, the rest of October, we will not be gathering. And so we have been talking about Peter, and as I mentioned, we actually are going to do three weeks on Peter. We did one last week, we'll do one tonight, and then we'll pick back up with Peter when we come back together again at the beginning of November. So just to remind you, these are some of the things we know about Peter, uh, that he's Simeon, he's Simon, he's Cephas, he's Peter, depending on which language you're looking at and which name you go with. He is the son of John or the son of Jonah, depends on, again on how you read that. He's a fisherman, along with Andrew, James, and John. He's from Bethsaida, moved to Capernaum, and he is married. Um, and there's one other thing I'm going to add to it that we didn't mention last week, but it plays in a little bit to what we're going to talk about tonight. And that's that he mentored Mark, uh, who then wrote his story in the gospel. So we have the four gospels and two of them are written by eyewitnesses, Matthew, uh, who we've already looked at the, 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 uh, apostle also known as Levi. He wrote the book of Matthew, John, who we looked about just before Pete looked at just for Peter. He wrote the book of John. Luke is one of those disciples, we'll probably talk about at a future time, but he's not one of the apostles. He wasn't an eyewitness to the events of Jesus. He joins Paul during Paul's missionary journeys as he travels. He becomes a convert, uh, a Greek convert to Christianity. Um, And so he wants to set the record straight. He wants to make sure there's some things that are clear. So he writes the, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And then we have the Book of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark is written, again, not by an eyewitness, But Mark is a a young Jew that Peter meets in Rome as he's going on his own ministry. He mentors Mark, um, and it becomes a really close relationship, so close that in one of Peter's letters, he refers to Mark as his son. Um, He says, my son Mark is here with me. You may have heard the name John Mark, also has some encounters with Paul and comes up a few times in the the New Testament in other ways. This is probably that same Mark, Mark also known as John. Um, and the early church unanimously, so for many, many years, believed that, that this mentorship, this relationship between Peter and Mark was the basis for the gospel of Mark. That what Mark is writing is essentially Peter's story. He's writing Peter's perspective and Peter's account. And, and he's probably collecting the recollections and the perspective of Peter, almost an outline, if you will, into the gospel of Mark. So the writing is Mark's, but the content is Peter's. And this is interesting. There's a couple of things that are interesting about the Gospel of Mark in this context. There's a lot of reasons, by the way, that that it does make sense. Uh, A lot of internal evidence that the the, uh, Gospel of Mark is Peter's recollections. But a couple of things that come about as a result of this that are very interesting. One is that the Gospel of Mark is the most succinct of all the Gospels. It's the shortest. And it's very succinct even in its stories. It seems to have a laser focus on actions. It's kind of the most action-oriented. It talks about things that were done gives us less of sort of the internal dialogue of any particular individual, less of the motivations. Definitely different from John. It doesn't get sort of into these theological discussions and philosophical conversations. Um, It's very action-oriented. But it's also really specific in, it seems very focused, kind of a laser focus on certain aspects, most significantly the last days of Jesus on earth, meaning his trial, his death, 
and his resurrection. This is kind of the core of the gospel. And this is interesting because it does reflect Peter's emphasis. When you look at Peter's sermons through the book of Acts, this is what you would expect to see. And this is what Peter focuses on. There's no birth story in the gospel of Mark as there are in Matthew and Luke. Um, and even a little bit in John, there's a really, really early story of who Jesus is going back to the creation, before the creation. But there's, no, there's none of that in Mark. It just kind of jumps right into it. The other thing is it's kind of what you would expect to see if someone wrote a book based on an outline or notes of somebody else, that it's kind of pared down. Um, and so that's really good. There's another interesting note, which I think is relevant, and it's even relevant to today's discussion about Peter. The other interesting thing about Mark the Gospel of Mark omits a lot of the significant, embarrassing moments in Peter's life. And I don't think that's because Peter himself was shy about them. I don't think Peter himself said, don't write about them. But I think it shows Mark's relationship with Peter. That as Mark is writing about Peter's story, he's going to leave out elements of the story which are not so positive about Mark. For one thing, they're not the emphasis Peter's making, which is all about Jesus. But the second thing is, there's just no reason. That's not part of what Mark wants to do. He's not there to embarrass Peter, so he doesn't get into it. The other gospel writers have no problem talking about when Peter kind of messed up. But here's Mark. He's this, this mentor, this, this uh, sort of protege of Peter. It makes sense that he would leave some of that out. And so he does. And I mention that because today you're going to find that none of our texts come from the book of Mark. <laughs> because we're going to focus a little bit on some of those moments in Peter's life which might not be his shining moments. In fact, you could see them as being sort of the embarrassing moments of Peter's life. It's interesting, they're not just embarrassing, it really depends how you look at them. They also could be some of his strongest moments. They could also be sort of reflecting some strengths about Peter that really come out uh, really helpful. And the other thing I'll mention is that the lesson tonight is gonna to be surprisingly similar to the lesson from last week but it's going to come from a more personal angle. Last week was sort of theological. This week we're going to see a similar message, but it's going to be much more personal. And as I say, as we look at these stories of Peter, one of the things you'll notice is it depends on which side of the coin you look at. These could be examples of Peter at his worst, but they also seem to be examples of Peter at his best. And what we'll begin to see through these stories is both happen at the same time. That he is, like all of us, complex and complicated and a mixture of contradictions. And in the same breath, in the same moment that he says something truly beautiful, he also manages to say something really stupid and put his foot in his mouth. And he's not all one or the other. In fact, a lot of what we're going to see, I'll just pull back the curtain, we're going to see a confidence in Peter, a really strong confidence. Peter is very confident. And there's a really beautiful side to that, and there's a really questionable side to that. There are things about Peter's confidence I admire because I lack, and I think would be helpful for me. And there's things about Peter's confidence that I, along with the rest of you, take delight in that sort of uh, way that we do when someone is weak. Uh, and we're glad we don't share that particular weakness that they have. So let's just look at a few of these stories. We're going to start, in fact, with Matthew 16, 23 or 21. And the reason we're going to start with that story is because it's literally, it is literally the very next verse after the ones that we read last week. If those of you who are here will recall that last week we talked about the story where, where Jesus says, who do you think I am? And Peter, of all the apostles, speaks up and says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, you are right, and God has shown you this, and upon this rock I will build my church. And Peter, in fact, I'm renaming you from Simon to Peter. I'm calling you the rock. 
Because this testimony, this witness that you've given is the foundation of the church, that I am the Messiah and you are the one who spoke it up, spoke up about it. And so I call you the rock and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we have this discussion, if you'll remember, that ultimately what Jesus is referring to, I believe, is that Jesus, of course, is the foundation and the head of the church. He is actually the author and the foundation and the, the ultimate authority to everything that happens in the church. And yet he does say to Peter, as well as to the other apostles, as you remember, he does give them a certain authority. He says that they are foundational to the church. Their testimony that Jesus is the Messiah is foundational to the church, and there's even authority in that. And we went on to talk about how the Holy Spirit kind of grants everybody an authority. There's an authority that we all have to be disciples, to teach everything that God commanded. It's not an authority only given to the pastor or to the group leader or to a particular worship leader. It's, it's, it's an authority and a responsibility that we all share to disciple. So that's what we talked about. What's fascinating is that within just a few verses of Jesus calling Peter the rock, he calls him something else. And this is part of the conflict and the contradiction and the complexity that is Peter hears the passage. So this is right after he says to Peter, what you guys do on earth will be reflected in heaven. I give you the keys of the kingdom. You are a rock, Peter. You're a rock star. And then he says this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is amazing. And the fact that it comes immediately on the heels of the previous verses is really interesting to me. Peter goes from rock and authority in the church to Satan and stumbling block in just a few verses. The rock that is part of the foundation to the church has now become a rock tripping Jesus up. And this, 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 this strength that Jesus responds with, this is a very large response. He calls Peter Satan. Satan is a word which means adversary. He is saying of Peter, you are not just wrong in this case, you're acting as an enemy of God. You're opposing the work of God. You're seeing things from such a human perspective that you're actually getting in the way. You're a stumbling block. You're tripping me up. You are trying to prevent God's success. Peter goes from being foundational to Jesus' success to actively opposing it, and it happens in four verses. <laughs> Peter thought he was protecting God. Peter didn't think he was opposing God. This rebuke must have stung, and it must have stung a lot because it's not what Peter thought he was doing. What Peter thought he was doing was protecting Jesus. What he thought he was doing was probably acting with that authority that Jesus had just given him to protect the church, to preserve the church. He thinks by arguing with Jesus that he's protecting the work, and Jesus tells him that by opposing his own death, Jesus' death, he's actually working against God. In fact, I think that you can almost see sort of the, the, the humanness in Jesus' reaction, not that there's anything less than divine about it as well, I think it's entirely accurate, but it's so strong. And then it's sort of the heat kind of goes out as he talks. You see that? He starts by saying, get behind me, Satan. And then as he goes, he's kind of like, you know what? You just don't understand. <laughs> it's almost like he begins to realize, Peter, it's kind of not your fault. 
You just don't have in mind the things of God. You can't see from God's perspective. You just don't get it. But I think the strength of the response also comes because I think what Peter says to Jesus is, humanly speaking, tempting. Right? He wants Peter to be on his side. He wants Peter to help him fulfill his mission, which is to die. And instead of coming alongside and lending Jesus strength for this mission, Peter is robbing him of that strength. He's playing into the very temptations that the adversary played into in those first 30 days in the wilderness, saying, you don't have to go through this. To the same temptation that Jesus feels in the garden when he says, if there's any other way, let's do this. At each moment, of course, Jesus is without sin, and he doesn't believe the temptation. But I can understand that from a human perspective, why hearing Peter say this to him is very hard for Jesus. And he wants to say to him, you're not helping. You're actually hurting. Humanly speaking, death is the end. Really, Peter is not crazy or wrong. How many of us wouldn't respond the same way? From a human perspective, death means defeat. It means we lost. So Peter says that isn't going to happen. He thinks maybe Jesus just needs encouragement. Jesus does, but not this encouragement. And Jesus says, you don't get it. From God's perspective, God has other concerns. You're concerned about my death, but God's perspective is concerned about you. God's concern was us. Philippians reminds us that Jesus laid aside every right and privilege and concern he had as God in order to take up our concerns as people who needed a Savior and a Messiah. And that's what God says, you don't understand. Jesus says to Peter, you don't understand. I'd rather work with you on this, Peter, but in this moment, you're, you're fighting for the wrong side. You're working against the plan of God. And I think this story shows both sides right off the bat of Peter's confidence and why it's so problematic. See, on the one hand, he probably only said what everybody else was thinking. Do we, do we recognize that? <laughs> I love the fact, too, there's even some discretion here in Peter. It says he pulls Jesus aside. He, he doesn't want to embarrass Jesus by pointing out that he's wrong in front of everybody. He'll just do it privately. So he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. He says, no, that's, stop talking that way. That's not right. That's not how it is. But he, again, he has the confidence to say what other people are just thinking. To Peter, it's obvious. And why wouldn't you say this? Why wouldn't you speak up about this? And what's interesting is it's the same confidence which said earlier that Jesus was the Messiah. The same boldness which made the one declaration made the other. For Peter, these aren't two different events. This isn't one event where he was strong and one where he was weak. For Peter, these look like the same thing. They're simply him speaking his mind about what is obviously true <laughs> without regard to what other people are worried about. I think they both come from the same heart and desire, which is to see Jesus come into his kingdom and the Jews restored along with him. And Peter just can't understand how death can be part of that plan. See, for Peter, there's no conflict between these two statements. You're the Messiah and you won't die. The conflict is in the statements Jesus is making. I am the Messiah and I will die. And yet in the two statements Peter makes, although they look to him to be the same, Jesus tells us one of them is foundational to the church and one of them is destructive to the church. Isn't that weird? Peter's confidence isn't the issue here. But somehow what he says is radically the issue. 
Let's hold that thought. Let's look at another story because I think we might start to see some patterns. So Matthew 14, this is actually happens earlier, but I wanted to cover that story first because it's such a good picture and it happens so, so similarly to the last week's story. Matthew 14, this is earlier. This is a really pivotal moment for, G, for Peter. You've probably heard this story too. I'll give you the context and then I'll pull up the passage that we're going to focus on. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. This immediately follows a story we've looked at a number of times because the other apostles have come into play as we looked at their stories. This is immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. This is after they, they, they get the bread and they get the, the fish and they feed everybody and he's been preaching all day. And then it says, and, and by the way, if you read the whole story, you find out that Jesus has been trying all day to get a little bit of alone time to pray. And it just hasn't happened. He's just been hounded by crowds or apostles or questioners all day. And he's been compassionate and helpful. And so this is why I think it says this. As soon as this ministry moment is done, it says immediately Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. He's like, in a loving, polite way, he said, get out of my face. <laughs> now, this is hilarious, too, because their goal is to go to the other side. They know that. He knows that. He's just put them in the only boat they have and sent them ahead and said, I'll catch up. You got to wonder what they're thinking at this point. How do you catch up across the lake? <laughs> Maybe he'll hire another boat. So immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. This is his moment. He finally gets the chance. Later that night, he was there alone. First time that's happened in about 36 hours, if you read through the whole story. He finally gets his alone time. He's up there. It's almost like an aside. What happens next is almost just because he happened to need this in order to get time alone. So later that night, he was there and the boat was already a considerable distance from land buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, it's interesting, they haven't gotten very far, and I wonder if they were kind of waiting for him. But they don't get very far. They're probably maybe trying to hang out, or maybe they were trying to get across, and he kept pushing back. Whatever it is, they end up there kind of like right out in the middle, and it's very windy, and there's a lot of waves. And then we come to this story. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. I love the matter-of-factness about this statement. It's like shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking along the roadside, except in this case, the roadside is a lake. And it really is just like he's just walking out to them. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake, and when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. Let's be honest. That's a really reasonable response. I mean, that's a, we, it's like we hear about Jesus walking on water so much, we almost think of it as, oh, what? Jesus walked on water, big deal. First of all, this is not a miracle he's ever done before. As near as I recall, it's not one he ever does again. It's not something prophesied the Messiah would do. See, a lot of miracles that Jesus did, they're like, when the Messiah comes, he will heal people. He will raise the dead. He will give the blind sight. He will make the lame walk. He will walk on water. That never came up. Because I don't think it's actually that significant. I mean, it's very significant. But for Jesus, it was just the way to get there. So he's walking on the lake, but they look up. They've never heard of this before. They look up and they see a figure in the wind, in the dark, in the storm. They don't know who it is, but the, the individual is walking on water. Or more likely, they thought, floating through the air. 
It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. I just, again, I love the, the casualness of this. He's like, oh yeah, didn't think about this. You would think this was a ghost. It's okay, it's only me. Yeah, I am still walking on water, but it's okay. It's just me. Now, all of that is amazing and weird and peculiar. But if we don't realize how peculiar it is, we don't realize how strange the next thing is. The next words out of Peter's mouth really don't make any sense. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason nobody else said this except Peter. It's weird. It's strange. Just a second ago, Peter was with them and thinking there was a ghost and there were waves and there was wind. But this is what happens. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Not if it's you, come get in the boat. If it's you, tell me to come to you on the water and come, he said. And I think Jesus is chuckling. He's like, what an interesting idea. All right, then, why not? Come, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Again, just sort of matter of fact. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Look, I think, just look at this story for a moment. You have to admire Peter's ability to flip a switch on his own ability to believe what's possible. Right? I mean, in just like that, he's like, yeah, I guess walking on water can be done. He didn't believe that five minutes ago. He didn't believe that in the morning. He's a fisherman. He knows how water works. He's also not stupid. He doesn't believe water properties have suddenly changed. He's probably sunk many times. <laughs> he's probably stepped on water numerous occasions and not felt if you have any solidity for him. And now there's a storm. This is the worst time to experiment with something that has frankly never been tested. Also, okay, he's got the, he's got the, the evidence of Jesus. Jesus is doing it. But how many things has Jesus done that Peter has never tried and probably will never do? <laughs> a time. And yet he says, if it's you, call me to you. I love even this. If it's you, he still can't quite see him yet. If it's a ghost, what's to stop the ghost from saying, yeah, it's me, come on out <laughs> to your death. It's like, the whole thing is bizarre. And on top of that, the voice says, come. And what happens? Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water. Look, the rest of the story is the part that's normal right? It's easy to pick on Peter for getting scared and starting to drown, but isn't that where we'd all start? <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's the part that makes sense. The part that's weird is that Peter is just like, oh, sure, we can do this. But here's the other part that's weird. What changed? Why? Peter, Jesus asks a really good question. He says, why did you doubt? Notice he didn't ask the other apostles that. He didn't say to them, why didn't you walk on the water? Because the answer is obvious. Because walking on water is crazy. <laughs> Presumptuous to think they can do it just because Jesus can. Jesus just fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. Doesn't mean they can. 
He didn't ask them because he knows why they didn't come. He asked Peter why he doubted. Why? Because Peter didn't at first. See, what changed? Peter's in the boat. The waves are there. The wind's there. He knows you can't walk on water. Jesus is standing there. When he gets out of the boat and walks on the water, nothing's changed. The waves are there. The wind is there. Jesus is there. In fact, the only thing that's changed is that Peter's theory has proved true and he actually can walk on water. So I think Jesus' question is, what happened between there and here? I mean, you've experienced something amazing. What, what happened? What shifted? What changed? It's actually pretty simple. The text does tell us. It tells us exactly what happened. What happened is that Peter was looking at Jesus, and then he wasn't looking at Jesus. What happened is he's walking across the water and he's thinking, this is awesome and I'm coming to Jesus. That was the whole thing. Call me to you. I'll come to you. Why did he think he could walk on water? Because he thought he could walk on water? No, because he thought he could always get to where Jesus was <laughs> if Jesus wanted it. But as he's walking towards Jesus, it says he saw the wind. That's actually an interesting statement. You can't really see the wind. But he saw the effects of the wind. He heard the wind. He felt the wind. He saw the waves and suddenly the wind, this invisible thing, seemed more real to him than the physical visible evidence of his own walking on water and Jesus standing and he began to sink. Again, because it's easy to be hard on Peter, it's really important to recognize that his next response is also exactly right. When he started to drown, he could have said, wait, I was walking, I can do this, and tried to figure out how to walk on the water again, right? He could have started paddling. He could have panicked. He could have said, I could never walk on water. What am I doing? He doesn't do any of those. He simply says, Lord, help. And I love the picture of Jesus just again, kind of casually reaching down, grabbing him by the hand and standing him up, just like we would a child who's fallen down, who's learning to walk on land. And he just stands him up. And I get the picture. It doesn't say this. It just says when they were back in the boat, I get the picture of Jesus taking him by the hand and together they walk back to the boat, Right? I don't think he carried him. I suppose he could have thrown him over his shoulder, but it didn't seem like it. I can see them walking together. Yeah, I don't think G Peter is just in the water and he's just pulling him through the water. Yeah, I don't think so. It says he helped him up. So I think he's standing and they walk back to the boat. But once again, we see something similar to the last passage. What we see, we see an unusually confident Peter at the beginning, right? A confidence that is mind-blowing to be honest. A confidence to be able to say, I've never walked on water, but I bet I can. <laughs> I just, and you know people like that. Some people are like that. Some people face a, a, a challenge they've never seen before, and they're like, we can do this. And you're thinking, why do you think that? And a lot of times they can. But there's this, this mind-blowing confidence, and it, it, it's a really noble confidence, but suddenly, as he's in the middle of it, it's revealed he doesn't really understand anything about what's happening, does he? <laughs> if he did, the wind wouldn't throw him. It's like he has this confidence, and once he's out there, then he realizes, I don't understand what's going on. And then Jesus calls him on it, and he's like, you don't understand what's going on. <laughs> you stopped thinking about things of God and started thinking about things like men do. And men don't walk on water. Hold that. Let's look at another story. After six days, Matthew 17, 
This is back to after the, the story about the rock and, the, and get behind me Satan. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. Now, this is a, a big uh, uh, $50 Greek word, transfigured. It, you, it's only used a couple of places in scripture. You kind of can figure out what it means from the context clues. But just to be really clear, transfigured really means to remove your mask. It means, think about Halloween. You're in a costume, people don't know who you are, and then you reveal it and you're like, aha, or, or Scooby-Doo. That always happens in Scooby-Doo. At the end, they pull the mask off the bad guy and they're like, oh, you're actually so-and-so. That's what transfigured here means. It doesn't actually mean that they, they changed. It means that they were hiding and suddenly what they actually were was revealed. And this is what actually happens. Although there's a change that comes over Jesus physically, the point is that what the apostles are about to see is what Jesus has always been. He's been God from the beginning. But he's been wearing a mask. He's been wearing this, this outfit of humanity. And he's hidden it well. And now they, just these three, for who knows whatever reason, Jesus d decides to take these three and reveal to them this special moment about who he is. It's really almost like he's just taking them to a meeting he already has to have, but he figured it'd be a good opportunity for them to learn as well. You're going to see that in a second. So he takes them with him and it says, there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. These are descriptions that mirror the descriptions we see in the Old Testament whenever sort of God's glory appears in the form of, of, a, of a thing that people can see. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So please, let's just be human for a moment. This is a ridiculous story. I mean, this is outrageous. This is crazy. This is, if you're Peter, James, and John, I, I, I just, I think the normal response of most people is you just are just silent, right? Because not only is Jesus suddenly glowing, <laughs> and looking like a god. But Moses and Elijah are there. And somehow, it doesn't tell us how, somehow they know it's Moses and Elijah. Now, I don't know what that means. Is it just because, you know, they have the icons with them? You know, Moses has the staff, or, or does he have a name tag? You know, I'm Moses. <laughs> and Jesus now has a name tag, says God. I don't, you know, I don't know. Yeah, Moses is carrying the Ten Commandments like it's a lot, like a Halloween. I don't know what it is, but they know. They recognize who they are. They just know. This is Moses. This is Elijah. And it's like they're just having a chat. Now, it's fascinating to think about what this is about, right? What are they discussing? <laughs> what is it that Moses and Elijah needed to know? <laughs> or it's just, it's just a weird, again, there's so much about this story we'll never know. But I... What we do know is the way that they reacted. Peter and James and John are there. They've been taken up in this moment and Jesus is there and Moses and Elijah are there. This is like if you're a Jew, there are no heavy hitter, heavier hitters than these three. I mean, this is it. This is in essence the law and the prophets. All representations of them right before you. And as we know, God of the new covenant. I mean, it is the picture of scripture right there. Everything you've ever read about is sitting right in front of you. And they understand it that way. They see it. They, they get it. They're like this. We are witnessing something truly, unbelievably miraculous. Something nobody should ever see, would ever have thought they would see. Jesus invited us to this. 
And James and John do what I would do. And not out of nobility, but out of just sheer awesome terror and confusion. They just say nothing. <laughs> Peter speaks up. And I don't say, I'm not saying it's wrong that he speaks up. I'm saying it's amazing he speaks up. And this is what he says. Lord, it is good for us to be here. Okay, that's interesting. What does he mean by that? Now, my first thought when I read that is what I would be thinking. Again, not out of nobility, but just it's where I come from as a personality. My first thought is what he means is, what an amazing thing you're letting us witness. Turns out it's not what Peter means. What Peter means is, it's a good thing we're here because you need us. Now, he just is talking to Jesus who just revealed himself to be God, Moses and Elijah, and Peter's first words are, oh, good thing we're here to help you guys out. It is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. I also love the lack of we here. Peter's just going to do this. No, James, no, John. I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. Now, two things that are, and, well, let me go on. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, here's a couple of things. First of all, I don't know what made Peter think that they needed shelters. This is Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. I don't, I don't get it. But again, I don't question his heart. I think his desire is right. I think he wants to respect them. He wants to serve them. He wants to protect them, right? And there's no direct rebuke. Jesus doesn't turn to him and say, Peter, you've done it again. But I actually think there is a rebuke from God himself. Because Peter says, I'll build you shelters. And what's the next thing that happens? A bright cloud covered them. It's like God said, I can create shelter. I mean, really, Peter? If they need shelter, I'll give them shelter. <laughs> what makes you think you're here because I need you to build a shelter? What makes you think I need you here to do something for me? And then he says, this is my son. This is the point of you being here. And then he says, with a little bit of artistic license, pastoral sermon license, he says, so Peter, shut up and listen. Isn't it fascinating that his words are, listen to him? I think it's for all three of them. But it is interesting that Peter speaks. And notice what else it says. While he was still speaking, God actually speaks over the top of Peter. He actually interrupts him. He's like, you're asking for shelter. Well, here's a shelter. And what I want you to do, Peter, is listen. I think it's a mild rebuke. I think it's a rebuke from a God who understands that Peter just doesn't understand. But I think it is a rebuke. <laughs> Once again, Peter's confidence is astounding, isn't it? Because even if I thought I should build a shelter for them, I would have so many questions about whether that was a good idea. I would never have spoken up. And yet Peter's just like, hey, shelter. I thought of it. It must be a good idea. Good thing I'm here to think of these things. And then once again, he realizes in the middle of it, while he's still speaking, he doesn't really understand what's going on. Somehow he missed the big picture. It's like he found it necessary to interject himself into this moment. See, Jesus brings them this, to this amazing moment, and it's clear all Jesus wants them to do is embrace it and see it. 
He wants to bless them by letting them be part of this incredible moment. And Peter somehow thinks that somehow his voice is necessary in this moment. And his activities are important in this moment. He thinks that he has to somehow do something to justify his being there in this moment. And God wants to say, the only thing I'm asking you to do is be here and listen and learn and grow. Be amazed. Take it back with you. They're witnessing this incredible event. Instead of simply being amazed and humbled, he somehow seems to think he has to find a way to become part of it. And I don't think God says shut up, but I do think he says hush. Hush. I mean, I, how often have we done this? This I have done. I don't have Peter's confidence, but how many times have I found a reason to speak to show my grasp of the moment instead of simply grasping the moment? <laughs> how many times have I needed to find a reason to speak to, to sort of cement my place in this moment, to show that I'm here and it's a good thing I'm part of this moment to analyze for you what's happening? That's how my brain works. When what really we should be doing is listening and learning and trying to understand ourselves rather than feeling compelled to do something about it. I think, again, Peter's confidence and his desire is admirable. I really do. I really, really do. But once again, he's missing the big picture because he's become so focused on his perspective and his role. Jesus is here being revealed not only as Messiah but as God, and Jesus is worried about whether he's doing what he should be doing. And at that moment, it really doesn't matter. Does God need us to build shelters? For that matter, do Moses and Elijah really need a shelter at this moment? Was that why they came? I mean, they're not normal humans. By virtue of the fact this is thousands of years after they should have died. It's such a small, petty concern when you think about it that Peter's worried about. And such a big picture that he's missing. It's, it's, it makes his words feel really small, doesn't it? When you really think about what's happening and what he says, and then God is like, I'll just bring a very cloud. I can create shelter from the, the, the fog of the air. And again, I think it's not that Peter's coming from a bad place, but his place is coming from bad understanding and a lot of confidence in bad understanding. Let's just take one more look. One more story tonight. We'll see some more in a couple weeks, but just one more for tonight. So this is the story about Jesus washing their feet. We've already seen this again from John's perspective. We talked a little bit about some of the things that, that this revealed to us about John. Peter's place in this story is fascinating. Once again, he speaks when nobody else does. For good or for ill, he speaks when nobody else does. And this is what it says. After that, Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, I love Jesus' answer. Jesus doesn't answer Peter's question. Peter says, you're going to wash my feet. Well, Jesus is like, that's really obvious. You already knew that. That's not, you're not asking, you're challenging. I know you, Peter. We've been hanging out for three years. I got it now. This is not a question. This is a challenge. So Jesus says, he cuts to the chase and he says this. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. 
this is actually the best answer Peter could have gotten. Jesus is really being very gracious, compassionate, and wise here. And when he says to Peter, look, I know, I know you don't get it. And you know what? I'm not even requiring you get it. Just let me do it, and you'll understand later. And Peter replies, no. <laughs> there aren't a lot of apostles who are just willing to respond to Jesus, no, regardless. But he says, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered with a sigh. <sighs> okay, I added that part. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Boy, there's a lot that happens in this story that tells us about Peter. First, again, we see Peter's confidence, right? Jesus says, you don't get it, you'll get it later. And Peter doesn't simply reply by saying, you're right, I don't get it, okay. He actually argues with Jesus. He's not just saying no to Jesus washing his feet. He's saying, no, Jesus, you're wrong. I understand it. You don't understand. Jesus, you're wrong to do this. You don't understand. Very similar to the I'm going to die conversation. No, no, Jesus, it's not me that doesn't understand. Let me explain it to you. Apostles flame. Let me explain it to you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, you know what? You really don't get it, but here's what you might get. If you want anything to do with me, you'll let me do this. And then Peter, again, turns on a dime. That amazing ability he has to go from, I can't walk on water to, I can walk on water. Now it comes into play here in a really good way. He's like, it's wrong for you to wash my feet. And Jesus says, it's not only right, but if you don't let me do it, you're not going to be my apostle. And Peter says, well, in that case, you can give me an entire sponge bath. Just do it all. See, for Peter, it's, everything is all or nothing, isn't it? That's not necessarily bad. It's just every, he wants to grab everything for all it is. He doesn't want to be half there. There are a lot of things you can say about Peter, but he is never a lukewarm or half-hearted apostle, is he? He never comes at it with a, well, we'll wait and see moment. He's always right there, right in the middle of it. And despite the fact that he's so confident, he is willing to be challenged. I mean, he probably got rebuked by Jesus more than any of the other apostles, and he's still here, right? How many of us would have been like, I don't like this guy. He keeps telling me I'm wrong, and all I'm doing is trying to help him. <laughs> I'm going to go find a different rabbi who's not quite so cantankerous. No, he's all in. He's all in, even if it means changing on a dime from don't touch my feet to wash me all over. In fact, I think there's a certain pattern of nobility and foolishness in Peter's confidence, which we see over and over in these stories. And I want to break it down for you just really fast. And then I want to tell you what I think the, the nutshell is, the lesson that we learned from this. Because even though we're not all like Peter, we all have this same struggle. We just reflect it in different ways. So here's Peter's struggle. This is the pattern. Peter walks through life, and as he goes through life, he sees something obvious, and he's completely confident in his perspective. Now, we all do this. There's things you see, and you're like, well, that's clear. And when it's clear, when it's obvious, you don't stop for a moment to think, maybe I'm seeing this wrong. I mean, it's just obvious. <laughs> and as Peter goes through life, everything is obvious. I think it's just most things are obvious to Peter. <laughs> it's just like, uh, no, messiahs don't die. Uh, yes, you're the messiah. I mean, to him, there's just not a lot of second guessing and doubt, which is not all bad. Sometimes that's really good. 
And so here's Peter. He sees something obvious. He's completely confident in his perspective. And why not? Because it's obvious. It's like if he was in an argument with somebody and they say, I have, I don't know if you've ever done this or been in an argument or been on this side of the argument where you've said something and the other person's like, well, why do you know that's true? And you're just like, well, because it is. <laughs> or, you, or you say to someone else, how do you know that's true? And they're just like, well, it's obvious. And you're just like, that's so frustrating. But that's where Peter is. It just, it just is. So when it's obvious, the thing that he does that not everybody does, which is entirely noble, is that he acts on this confidence without regard to what others think or see. In other words, if it's obvious and he knows he's right, he just doesn't care if other people think he's right. Now that's not bad. And if he's right, it's really good, right? When you act on what you know is right and you're right about what you know is right, it is good to do it without worrying about whether other people will think you're right. In fact, I've often said as believers that we will frequently come across moments in our lives where we have to make a choice whether we want to look righteous or be righteous. And it's better to be righteous. We'll have to make a choice whether we want to look holy or be holy. We have to make a choice whether we want to look smart or be smart. And doing the right thing will cause other people to think you're stupid and unwise. And Peter, he just misses that gene altogether. He's just like, I don't really care. I don't give a flying flip whether the other apostles think this makes sense or not. That's why he's always the first to talk. Jesus is like, who do you think I am? And Peter's like, I don't know why no one else is talking. It's obvious. You're the Messiah. Jesus is like, I'm going to die. Peter's like, I don't know why no one else is telling you this, Jesus, but it's obvious. That's a bad plan. <laughs> Jesus is like, I'm going to wash your feet. All the apostles are like, this is weird. Peter's like, why are you guys so quiet? Jesus, this is weird. You know, he just doesn't care. He's just, he's just there. It's obvious. He's confident and he acts on it. And there's nobility in that. In fact, there are times that I really admire this about Peter because there are times I lack this. I am so good at second guessing myself and worrying about what other people think, whether it's going to come across right or not. And Peter is just unplagued by that. And some days I want that that's good. But here's the difficulty. The third part of Peter's struggle is that he's always surprised to be rebuked and to learn that he didn't have all the facts or just frankly didn't understand. You know, he's confident he's right. It's so obvious. He acts on it. And then Jesus rebukes him and he's like, wait, you mean I could be wrong? You mean there might be another perspective to this? you mean it just never occurs to him in the obviousness of his perspective that he could, in fact, be wrong. And that's not so noble. That's where the problem comes into play. Not his willingness to act on his confidence, not his passion, his enthusiasm, or his commitment. Those are all good. But his inability to determine something might be wrong. And it, it gets worse because he rinses and repeats this so often that what you begin to realize is every time Jesus rebukes him, Peter doesn't even learn the lesson then for so long. The next time he comes to an obvious moment that's obvious to him, he doesn't stop to think, I got this wrong last time. He thinks, well, this is obvious. <laughs> he, he has a hard time getting past that point where his confidence in himself, in his own analysis, in his own understanding, in his own abilities might not be as well-placed as he thinks. 
where he sees himself as the most faithful follower of Jesus, where he sees himself as having this incredible confidence and trust in Jesus, what is revealed over and over is that his real confidence is in his ability to trust. And there's a story we haven't even talked about yet. We'll talk about it in a couple of weeks, but you all know it. It's the repeated exclamations that Peter makes that I will never, ever deny you. And then the reality that he does deny him. See, I think Peter is 100% sincere when he says, I will go to the grave with you. I will do it all. I will never deny you. I think Peter believes that. Problem is, he's just wrong. (laughs) And he can't see it. And his inability to see, to have the humility, there's a real arrogance in his confidence. In his own abilities, not in Jesus. What happened in the boat? He said, call me to come to you. And as soon as he starts walking on the water, I don't think it's just that he saw the wind. I think it's that he started, he saw the wind and he doubled down on his determination to walk on water. And as soon as he did, he was relying on the wrong person to help him walk on water. When he first stepped out of the boat, it was all about Jesus calling him. Once he gets in the middle of it, he's determined not to fail. And that determination is in itself his failure. See, I think Peter's desire is good in almost every case. In fact, he's more pure in his good desires than almost anybody else in Scripture. (laughs) He's very consistent if you really look at his stories. I think his desire is good. I think his boldness is admirable, something to emulate. But his trust in himself is a real problem. Peter's all or nothing. That's good. His statements aren't insincere. I think they're born of complete commitment, and that's not bad. But the dark side is he's unaware of his own limitations. Namely, he's unaware that willpower, determination, and desire just aren't enough. Commitment, passion, enthusiasm, determination, these are all good things. But man's perspective tells us these are also enough. Man's perspective tells us when you fail, it's because you lacked one of these things. Maybe you've been judged that way. Maybe somebody has said to you, the reason you're not more successful at X, Y, or Z is because you don't want it enough. You're not determined enough. I'll tell you what, in 30 years as a pastor, there are a few things that I'm more confident is just an outright lie. But that's hard for us to accept because what I'm telling you is that what's inside you is not enough. That's hard. That's not something we like to hear in our culture. That almost feels like I'm judging you, but I'm not. See, Peter thought what was in him was enough. Peter subscribed to the Wizard of Oz theology. The Wizard of Oz theology, the, the, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and Dorothy, they all go to see the wizard because they believe that the wizard is going to give them what they need. And when they get there, the story tells us that what the wizard reveals to them is, you never needed me, you always had it within yourself. The story itself, by the way, is a mess of logic because the guy telling them this is a con man, and we know that by this point. So why they believe anything, he says, I have no idea. But it does seem to be part of the point of the story, at least, at least in the movies, perhaps not in the book, that all they needed to do was dig inside themselves to find their courage, to find that goodness, that that was enough. Dorothy herself is told she always had the power to go home. Turns out it was the shoes, which again, isn't really insider, but we kind of gloss over that in the story. 
But this is Peter's theology. And frankly, it's our current theology, both in and out of church. There is this idea that with enough willpower, with enough self-reliance, with enough determination, we can conquer anything. And the gospel, before it's good news, brings us the unsettling news that you don't have what you need. You just don't. That what's in you, there's good in you. I'm not saying nothing in you is good. Like there's nobility in Peter. There's good in you, but there's not enough in you. You just don't have the power. And I think that what's interesting is that men, many a man, many a woman has learned this at the most difficult moments when their formulas have fallen apart, when their self-determination and self-reliance wasn't enough. To put it as raw and brutally as I can, no amount of determination can stop that random bullet from leaving that gun and heading towards you. No amount of determination can change the cancer cell to be benign. Let's just make it really simple. No amount of determination will keep you from aging. I know the younger you are, the harder that is to believe. I'm right with you. I've said for years I was going to live to be 140. I was just determined. Everybody knows I'm joking because everybody knows I can't do that. Just wait, though. The formulas fall apart. I have a friend, mentor, really, who was fond of saying you win or lose by the path you choose. And there's some truth to that. I get the point they're trying to make. The point they're trying to make is that our choices matter. There's responsibility, and that's all true. Because there are some things that your determination, your willpower, and your choices can affect. Sometimes you can bend other people to your will. Sometimes you can bend circumstances to your will. And you can very often, but not always, even bend your own will to your will. But the truth is, when you say you win or lose by the path you choose, you know who's most prone to say that and believe it most strongly? The winners. <laughs> Why? Because then they get to look at you with self-righteousness and pride and say, you lost because you didn't make as good a choice as I made. When the reality is, sometimes we win when we don't deserve it. And sometimes we lose through no fault of our own. Even our own sins seem so completely under control when we're younger. We tell ourselves that as we get older, we'll conquer it. We'll get better. We can do it. We have the ability. We're perfect. We just need a little more time, a little more determination. The time passes, you get older, and you more and more begin to realize, I can't even bend my own will to my will. It's an important realization to understand that we don't fail always because we don't try hard enough. We don't fail always because we don't want it badly enough. I've known so many people who wanted nothing more than to succeed in overcoming this or that addiction, and their desire was not enough to make it happen. Why is the idea of a higher power so helpful for those who are recovering from addiction? Why is it such a staple of, of Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous? Because that realization that it isn't all within us is actually an important part of the gospel. And Peter was unwilling to accept this. So unwilling he wouldn't even accept Jesus' death as necessary. Because to accept Jesus' death as necessary was to accept that Jesus had to die because of our failure, because of Peter's failure, because of our sin, because of our frailty, because we can't do it. Peter's desires were good. His commitment was admirable. His declarations were sincere. But his understanding was partial. He was looking at it through the lens of man instead of God. 
It wasn't true. He thought desire and commitment and sincerity were all that was needed, but he needed the Messiah. He needed someone outside of himself, someone who wasn't him. So our second lesson from Peter is this. Willpower and desire are not enough. And maybe some of you as Christians have believed it is enough. But if it was, why on earth did Jesus die? Why didn't he just give you a motivational speech on desire and willpower? You need a Messiah and you're not it. There is good in you, but it's not enough to make you clean. Think about a seed for a moment. I love this because we argue about whether we're enough or not enough and some people really don't like to hear that we don't have everything we need because it sounds like I'm saying there's no good in humanity. I'm not saying that. Think about a seed, a seed for a plant. Everything that seed needs to become a tree is inside that seed on one level, yes? I mean, it's all there. It's in that little comeback seed. And yet on another level, it's absolutely not. If I take that seed and I put it on a counter in an airtight room and I walk away, that seed will never become everything that it could become, will it? It needs to be planted. It needs soil. It needs water. It needs sunlight. And none of these things are inside the seed. Do you understand that? Everything that seed needs is there, and yet it's not there. (laughs) It comes externally. Think even about human babies. Can you take a human baby and does he have everything he needs to become the man or woman that he or she will become? In one sense, yes, it's all written in the DNA. But will that baby survive without help? Absolutely not. That baby needs someone to nurture it, nourish it, and feed it, take care of it, and love it. The problem is we think that that changes when we grow up to become humans. We think that the goal of maturity is greater independence. We think that babies are dependent and that's what makes them babies. And as we grow up, we become more independent. We don't need anyone. We don't need anything. And the more independent we become, the more mature we are. And that's what Peter thought. And guess what? Peter was wrong. This is the struggle Peter has. He wants to be all in. He wants to commit completely to be what Christ needs. But Christ keeps calling him not to commitment, but to surrender. See, Peter keeps saying, I am committed. I'm more committed than anybody. And Jesus keeps saying, would you just stop being committed for a moment? And just surrender? He wants to be everything Christ needs. And Christ keeps saying, I need nothing. Except for you to let me be what you need. The call is the same for us. Christ calls us not to commitment, but to surrender. Not to become what Christ needs, but to let Christ be completely everything we need. When you try to build that shelter for Jesus and Moses and Elijah, listen to God say, hush, I didn't invite you here to be something I need. I invited you here so you could see that I'm everything you need. It's easy to boast about commitment, about our determination and our willpower and our greater spirituality. It's harder, much harder to be self-righteous about surrender, about our complete dependence and reliance upon Christ. It's not impossible. We have a knack for being self-righteous about anything. But it's harder. In fact, I think sometimes we're afraid, we're shy, we're timid to tell the world what is the truth about Christianity. We are afraid they will think that as Christians we're weak and that Christianity is weak if we tell them that at the bottom line, 
Christianity is not about getting it right. Christianity is about surrendering it all and recognizing that we are completely 100% dependent upon Christ for our entire lives. And if they think we're weak for saying that, this is where we could take a page from Peter and let's just be bold and say it and not worry about what they think. Because to tell them anything else is to tell them a lie. Look, whether you're someone who's seeking the truth of the gospel, you're hanging out with focus because you're trying to figure out if it matters and if it's true, or whether you're someone who believes the gospel and you're saved, the process never changes. Whether you're a baby Christian who just became saved or you've been a Christian for years and you're mature, the process never changes. It doesn't become at certain point about being less dependent on Christ and more independent. It always becomes about becoming increasingly reliant, dependent, and, and needing Christ for your sufficiency. At no point do you cross a threshold where Jesus says, oh, now you're mature enough, you don't need me anymore. What happens is you cross the threshold where Jesus says, finally, you're getting mature enough to realize that you need me all the time, every moment. Christ calls you, first and foremost, not to be served by you. You know who told us that? Christ. <laughs> Several times. He calls you to let him serve you. He calls you to the table to wash your feet. And if you say, I won't do that, he says, then you don't have anything to do with me because that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to serve you. And you say, that sounds wrong. Well, welcome to the club. It has sounded wrong to his apostles since the very beginning. But that's man's perspective, not God's. Jesus wants to not only wash your external limbs, but he wants you, like Peter, to give yourself over to him completely. So next week, we're going to see one more, or next week, actually, in a few weeks, We'll see one more lesson to tie this all together to see something really important, to see how Peter learned something I want to assure you is true, that an incredible dependence on Jesus will not rob you of your identity, but will ensure it. It will not rob you of agency, but it will engage it. And for those of you with FOMO in relation to the gospel, you'll see that Peter learns that only by surrendering entirely to the gospel are you able to see what you've been missing out on all along. Tonight's benediction is going to be from Peter. I like taking these, these lessons from Peter and wrapping and closing them with, a, with, a lesson, with the words from Peter. Let's let Peter have the last words about what it means. 1 Peter 5, 5b through 11. And again, as I read it and you see it on the screen, I want to challenge you to think deeply of the words as you hear them. Don't just let them wash over you. Contemplate them. Consider them in light of the lessons Peter learned about his own arrogant assumptions and what it means to humble yourself under God's mighty hand to recognize your dependence upon him for everything. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong and firm 
and steadfast. And to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.